just want to point out that Celeste said, oh, you can lie. Oh, I put the medicine in. (laughs) 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 So true. Hey, Serena, respect. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we lose the trail and it's eat or be eaten as we hunt for the true cannibals in Donner Dinner Party. Next up, the steam engines of our looming mechs hiss as they rumble to conquest across Eastern Europa in Scythe. And lastly, we see there's something very special about the cards as we play. This game goes to 11. I'm your host, Celeste Angelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hello, my name is Evan Bernstein. I'm not a filmmaker. Hi, I'm Ed Povlitis. I recorded this bit in D minor, which, as you know, is the saddest of all things. I'm Joe Onfrey, and, well, as long as there's dice and meeples, I could do without the rock and roll. Hi, I'm Mike Grenier. In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history, an ancient race of people, the Druids, no one knew who they were or what they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) That is one of the best scenes. It is my favorite scene. (laughs) Hey, this week, WGF is super excited to release our interview with Jamie Stegmeier from Stonemeyer Games. Yeah, I sat down with Jamie this week to talk to him about Scythe his game design techniques, and his really cool charity. Ooh, his charity. Oh, I can't wait (laughs) to find out what that's about. Look for it this week coming up. And also be sure to check out our latest news and articles at whichgamefirst.com. This week, you can learn how Joe flipped with giants at the National Othello (laughs) Championships and find out if chess should be mandatory in schools. Our first game up this week is Donner Dinner Party, designed by Forrest Prusan Creative, published by Chronicle Books in 2017. Number of players, 4 to 10, ages 12 and up, playtime, 30 to 60 minutes. Okay, when we spotted this game on the horizon, what were our first thoughts? Mike? I bet this game's going to be really tongue-in-cheek, but who's tongue and who's cheek? Evan? Too soon? Uh, I don't know. Ed? Uh, how come there's a mirror in the menu? Joe? I was looking forward to playing this game with a bunch of strangers. I didn't want it to be personal. This cannibal game comes with a frying pan as the moving piece prop. I am liking the dark humor already. But before people start screaming, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. Donna Dinner Party. <laughs> is a social deduction game in which players take on the secret identity of either pioneer or cannibal. Each round of survivors draw three cards representing items they found while hunting. Then players anonymously add one card from their hand to the supply. The pioneers will try to add food to keep the party alive, but the cannibals prefer the taste of human flesh. So they will try to thwart these efforts by coming back empty-handed or even poisoning the entire food supply. If there's not enough to feed the party each round, the survivors will vote to eat one of the living for sustenance. In the end, if the number of cannibals equals the number of pioneers, the cannibals win. 
If the pioneers survive seven weeks without this happening, they survive the harsh, harsh winter. And have PTSD for the rest of their lives. <laughs> yeah. And also, they do eat people each round, so technically they're cannibals also. Yeah, they also have to eat people to survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the difference is they didn't enjoy it as much as the original cannibals who came on the trip. As Attorney Unfried will tell you, it's intent that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So if if anybody out there has played Werewolf or Mafia, this game has a very similar mechanic of the social deduction where there's two people who are hidden bad guys and they know who each other is and they're trying to basically sabotage everybody else during the game without getting caught. How awful. I want to accuse Aaron out of irony. Uh, I I really do. I think think Aaron was super paranoid about being poisoned. (laughs) He brought an entire backpack full of medicine. I do fear poison. Or he's a cannibal who didn't want his meat to be poisoned before he ate it. (laughs) Uh, But this game does give you a few extra tools to work with. There are supply cards and hunting cards. The hunting cards give you either food or you come back with nothing or you come back with poison stuff. Or medicine is the other thing you might find out there. (laughs) Yeah. So you got to work with what you got. Even if you're not a cannibal, you might be stuck with, you know, two poison cards. Yeah. It's like a string of poison berries that if you put them into the mix, it poisons all the food unless somebody else contributed medicine. Or empty handed would bring nothing. There's also a couple of different levels of food cards. Like the fit gives you one person with the food and the squirrel gives you two persons with the food yeah two squirrels yeah you're you're bit you're living large if you bring back two squirrels from the hunt um and if somebody's contributing squirrels and you see that that happened you can kind of tell that person's trying to help or they're really trying to throw you off as you can't believe the only thing i can tell you is this man did not contribute <laughs> food right <laughs> he did not contribute food but that does not mean that he's a cannibal. He may have had nothing Right, there's three him. empty what, hands. What did so. he contribute, Camp Counselor? Oh, empty hands. Empty hands. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's not poison. Somebody put poison. Sometimes you don't have to. Yeah, it wasn't me. Sometimes you feel like I a I didn't put the poison in there. You did not put the poison in there. Sometimes you feel like a squirrel. Sometimes yeah. you don't. At the beginning of the game, each person got one supply card to help them out. Yeah, like, uh, for instance, the Bible, which lets you be the camp leader again, like you take that first player token back. And the advantage of being the the camp leader is that you can peek at one person's contribution before they put it in. So you're like, who's the shadiest? I'm going to look at your card to see what you're putting in this turn. And if you see poison, you're almost positive that person's a cannibal. You can't show that card to anybody, but you can tell everybody this is what I saw if you want to. If you're the cannibal, you might want to look at the other cannibal's card and then lie about what it was to help them stay in the game. The leader in our game was uh, eyeballing me, so I put in a little bit of food just to throw the scent off. Even though you were a cannibal? Yeah. (laughs) Of course you were a cannibal. Yeah, the more players you have, the more cannibals are in the mix. There's always less than half, obviously, because once you get to half the players being cannibals, they turn on the rest of the players and eat them and win the game. Yes, yeah, so we played this game with a mixed group of people, people we knew and people we had never met before. You really don't know what to expect or how people are going to behave, and there is a lot of talking during this game. So I didn't know which players were more nefarious than others in general, you know, like <laughs> who enjoyed backstabbing more. And half the players didn't know me, which automatically leads to suspicion when strangers <laughs> are in the room. Uh-huh. Yeah. Somebody who didn't know Ed well pointed out that Ed had tucked his roll card into his coat and zipped it up. And they were like, I just want to say Ed had zipped up his card <laughs> so nobody could see it. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's called a tell. Mike's girlfriend pointed out, she's like, I just want to point out that Celeste just asked for clarification whether or not she could lie and then answered. <laughs> you know? so- yeah. yeah, the kind of meta psychology part of this game is what really makes it interesting because you learn a lot about the way people interact by watching how they interact with this game. So does it say something about me that I was the first one eliminated as a cannibal and I was playing a pioneer. It's kind of a compliment because they think you're really devious. And if you are a cannibal, you're going to really mess everybody up. They think you're an accomplished gamer. Yeah. And that can be one of the problems with the, uh, the social deduction type game, especially with a large crowd. Is that no, you can get eliminated in the very first turn and be sitting around for the next hour or so waiting for the game to finish. Mm, good point. Don't you get to keep going as the ghost for at least one more turn? If you're killed in the game, you can remain in the game sort of as a ghost where you can mumble and gesture. And uh, slightly different from Werewolf, in this voting, the camp leader calls out one, two, three, and everybody just points at the same time. And whoever has the most votes in that stage is voted out. You don't need a majority. A plurality, I believe it's a called. A plurality. Oh, Ed, getting fancy up in here. <laughs> and if I recall correctly, you don't have the option to not vote. Correct. I don't think you're allowed to abstain. Like, I don't want to kill anybody. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that yeah. could be your shtick. That could be your act. Like, I really hate doing this. I'm so sorry. And then your point. <laughs> There's a whole lot of, like, taking on of a character that people just naturally gravitate towards. That's the only way I have fun with these games, by taking on a different role. It's important in social deduction games not to go over the top in appearing too sure of yourself. Yeah, that could be a downside. Or you could get lucky and everybody else sees you as the leader and never suspects you as the cannibal. I guess it depends on how many people are playing. It's a little bit harder to put a large group under your spell, you know, and rule them with <laughs> an iron fist. But it does happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like role-playing matters in this game, but the, th- the person you're role-playing is yourself. <laughs> yeah. You have to come off as sincere. <laughs> oh, I take on a full-on character sometimes. Like, oh, he looks delicious. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I get extra creepy. So they just look away from me like, he's so creepy, there's no way he could possibly be the cannibal and be that creepy. <laughs> like, I remember one time, uh, playing like werewolf uh, this is a Russian busher and uh, just playing around like oh yeah I, I cut up meat for a living what's up yeah I'm bloody but that's not because I'm a werewolf trying to eat you, you know? <laughs> this game too like you, you can come up with a full on character and try to throw people off so Forest Fruzan is an interesting game company. I really like their approach to game design. They're a Seattle-based company, and they actually have a very intensive uh, consumer testing department. And you can actually go to their website and apply to become a game tester for them. And they invite people Monday to Friday, you know, just the normal business hours. They invite families and groups of friends to come in and play test their games. And they do very rigorous set of, you know, questions and tests for them. Uh, So they actually watch it inside their headquarters, which I thought was fascinating. Wow, they take their R&D seriously. Yeah. They definitely do. And they've got some big brands that they've licensed, like Disney. Uh, One of their games is Pictopia, which is a hugely popular Disney game about the Disney movies. They also have quite a few Star Wars games. Something I found interesting that they have found is that strangers playing together tends to skew their results. So they, they usually look for people who know each other to play these games. And I guess my favorite thing about it is everybody who playtests gets a free advanced copy of the game. Ooh. 
So each group that plays. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. The name Donner Dinner Party comes from the Donner Party, which is the infamous group that actually cannibalized each other, or so the legend goes. But um, they were definitely a real group of people. And something that I learned about them that was funny is that uh, they bought a fake guidebook or a dishonest guidebook, you want to say, from the author named Lansford Hastings. Uh, he was promoting a straighter and supposedly quicker path that cut through the Wasatch Mountains and across the Salt Lake Desert. There was just one problem. No one had ever traveled the Hastings Cutoff, as it was called, with wagons. Not even Hastings himself. Um, despite <laughs> the obvious risks and against the warnings of a guy named James Kleiman, who was an experienced mountain man, the 20 Donner Party wagons elected to break off from the usual route and gamble on Hastings' back road. Uh, the decision proved disastrous. <laughs> the emigrants were forced to blaze much of the trail themselves by cutting down trees, and they nearly died of thirst um, during a five-day crossing of the Salt Desert. Uh, so rather than saving them time, Hastings' shortcut ended up adding nearly a month to the Donner Party's journey, which back then was a big deal because you're carrying all your supplies on your in your wagons and on your back. Yeah. Um, the lesson here to me was uh. that there's no such thing as a shortcut because if there was a shorter, faster way, people would already be going that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the point? How many people died in the Donner Party? About half of them died. There was 81, mostly children. Um, mm, man. and yeah, I think about half of them died on that journey. Well, and the moral of the story is if whenever you're in the old West, never take the word of some fancy dressed city slicker with all his book learning <laughs> over a grizzled mountain man. <laughs> yeah. And any story anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you play in Dudland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you follow the slick guy or do you follow the grizzled mountain man who has That's nothing right. to lie to you about? <laughs> yeah, there were actually quite a few people online who were um, put off by the grim subject matter. You know, they are essentially l making light of a of a brutal tragedy. <laughs> yeah, but right, exactly, yes. but um, right. but you know, I mean, if you're going to play a game like this, I I think the subject matter is handled as well as it could be. <laughs> it's as lighthearted <laughs> as a game about cannibals can be. Next week, Titanic, the board game. <laughs> It's a dexterity game where you flip uh, people onto lifeboats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, missed another one. He's going to drown. Okay, explorers, it's never been more appropriate to say, grab your shovels. It's time to dig up or bury Donner Dinner Party. Joe? It's good to play at a moment's notice with friends or even strangers. It's hard not to learn this game very fast. Dig this up. Evan? Party games are always worth a try. I had to miss Mikey's birthday party. So sorry, Mikey. So I have to refrain for the time being. Ed? This does add a few new things to the werewolf style game. If you like those sorts of social party games, you may enjoy this. But for me, I'll bury it. It's all about player elimination. Mike? I saw the kindest of my friends turn into a bloodthirsty mob in a matter of minutes. For that alone, I will dig this up. It's great for a mixed group of friends and strangers and cannibals. Uh, so I will dig it up. Mike, where can you find this game? Well, I saw it in the big box stores for about 15 to 20 bucks, but always check your local gaming store first. If you have thoughts about Donner Dinner Party, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is Scythe. 
Designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, published by Stonemeyer Games in 2016. Number of players 1 to 5, ages 14 and up. Playtime 115 minutes plus. When we put this game under the magnifying glass, what were our first thoughts? Mikey? The buzz around this game was huge, but will it live up to the hype? I don't know. Evan? Scythe. The name gives me no indication of the theme of this game. None. Ed? Hmm. Those mechs out there. They should help out those farmers with the scythe. Joe? This game doesn't look like a war game to me. It looks like more of a command and control game. It has a huge colorful map playing board. Oh, but wait, you can get an expansion that makes the board twice as big. But not your table. (laughs) But before we sprawl this thing across an entire conference table, Evan, tell us how it's played. Scythe is an engine-building game set in an alternate history of 1920s Europa. It is a time of farming and war, broken hearts and rusted gears, innovation and valor. Each player represents a character from one of the five factions of Eastern Europe who are attempting to earn their fortune and claim their faction's stake in the land around the mysterious factory. Players conquer territory, enlist new recruits, reap resources, gain villagers, build structures, and activate monstrous mechs. That's so cool. The game ends when a player has earned their sixth achievement star. Players then tally the fortune they've earned, including bonuses for achievement stars, controlled territories, resources, among others. Good popularity will improve your fortune. The player with the most wealth wins the game and Europa. Of course, as with any good Euro game, there are roughly 2,000 ways to acquire coins, (laughs) 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 a.k.a. victory points in other games, coins in this game. Man, from a design perspective, having multiple victory conditions is very difficult to balance. So, And this game seems very well balanced to me. Wow, there was a lot of stuff to try to balance in this game. Uh Tons. I Mm -hmm. mean, everywhere I looked, there was some other way to approach playing. So uh, even on my own board, you know, there was about 10 different places to try and gain victory. Oh, yeah. To the point where there's so many things you want to try to do each turn and so few that you actually can do. (laughs) Right. In most cases, you only have a choice of three different actions you can take. Each faction mat gets a player character that you move around the board, and that's one piece of what you're controlling. And each character has an animal companion. In my case, I was playing Polonia with Anna and Wojciech. Wojciech was a big bear that walked around the countryside with me. I just want to point out quickly, I loved the shout out to the 22nd Artillery Supplies Private Wojtek. He was the real-life orphan bear cub who joined the Polish land forces in 1942. Yeah, so he was a real bear that really existed. Yeah, they named that bear in the game after the real-life bear. Oh, that's awesome. A couple of years later, he was at the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy, and he carried 100-pound crates of artillery shells, often stacking them neatly onto the backs of trucks, and he never dropped a single one. (laughs) Good thing they'd have fired that bear if he did. <laughs> You're fired, bear. We're going to get some other bears waiting for the job. <laughs> uh, I was playing the Nordic faction. My perk was that I could deploy forces directly across rivers, and my companion animal was a muskox. 
I was the Gunther faction, and my companion was, I believe, the eagle. Uh, it was a Valkyrie-like woman holding an eagle. And again, uh, uh, my faction had certain advantages for battle. I love the miniatures for the faction. The mini has the person and their companion animal. And these companion animals are huge, right, next to the people. I thought Evans looked the scariest because that eagle was ready to fly. <laughs> oh, it was a raptor, a bird of prey, ready to go, ready to tear your eyes out. <laughs> totally Yeah, was. and I had the rectivist union where I had a nice big Siberian tiger. Changa, yeah. What I loved about the mechs was that you could always tell they were mechs, but each faction's mechs looked sometimes radically different from each other. Yeah, like one of them has a giant scythe and like steam vents coming out of its back. Yeah, the attention to detail was really, really good in the pieces of this game. The board itself, it, you know, it, they, it felt, it, they, they put a lot of time and effort into it. And you did, you felt like you were playing your actual faction because of the pieces they, they gave to you. Yeah, the component quality in the game is really good. It had a top-notch uh, look and feel to the game. Yeah, I feel like people have a weakness for, like, cool miniatures in a game. I mean, certainly we do as as role players who sort of live in a world with tons of miniatures. Um, I think we certainly have a weak spot. And who doesn't love, you know, custom minis? Oh, yeah. It's a great way to set the scene. I mean, a custom mini riding a big giant ox. I mean, how cool <laughs> is that? My favorite part of the game was definitely using my character. There are so many ways and strategies to use. And luckily, mine was faction-based, where the character moving around the board was one of the best and easiest ways for me to gain coins. Because characters engage with something called encounter cards, and those encounter cards are one way to gain coins um, and supplies and other things that are going to get you two coins. Um, and mine had an advantage there. So I actually got to go around the board and use encounters more than other people. The characters and encounters were the most heavily thematic. I thought the game fell down in relating the theme to mechanics in other areas. I didn't feel the theme in almost any of the other areas. The mech deployment felt a very felt very detached from the theme for me. Um, it was difficult, although the mechs were a very big part of the game. The encounter cards are often humorous and they can really jumpstart your your progress. Yeah, I like I really love the encounter cards. They really breathe a lot of life into the world. For example, there's one card that showed Anna and her trusty bear companion, Wojak, walking between some farmers harvesting grain. Your choices are to have your bear help with the harvest, hire the worker to further your progress, or force the worker to harvest for you while you watch. Right, and so your popularity is an important part of this game, and it would go up or down depending on how you behave on these cards and the choice you make. And you would get different resources correspondingly. And then there's a whole other world going on in this game. <laughs> you know, you have to take actions in this game, obviously, and you do that by utilizing your player mat. We talked about the faction mat, so this is the player mat. So your player mat is divided into four sections. And each section has a top row of actions and a bottom row of actions. So for every player mat, they have on their top row the following four actions. Bolster, move, trade, and produce. And then the bottom row actions for that same mat are deploy, upgrade, build, and enlist. 
So you can do one top action. And if you're able, because you have enough resources to do a bottom action, you may do that as well. So this game is a resource management game. If you don't have resources, you're not going to get bottom actions. If you don't get bottom actions, you're just not going to get far enough in this game to compete. It does build itself as an engine building game. I was pretty frustrated when I was playing the game because I was looking at strategies. A lot of strategy guides said you want to try and have enough resources to do bottom actions by your second turn. That's really going to help you. And honestly, there was no way with my combination of faction board and player mat. And by the way, these player mats are randomly distributed to you. They don't go with your player mat. There's no, there's no built-in synergy there. Right. You get a random faction map and random player map. And each player map actually has a different random assortment of top actions and bottom actions. Right. Every card seems to be unique. Yes, they're all different, both top and bottom. So the combination is critical to your strategy, and you really have to be adaptable. Because if you can't adapt to the board you get, then you're really going to be um, frustrated. And it took me some time to get my engine going, too. And I think that's part of the excitement for me is trying to take what you're given and build an engine out of it. It's like, okay, what do I want to do to get this engine cranking? Well, it does prevent people from having pet strategies. That's for sure. Unless there's a person out there like I probably would be where I come up with all the different permutations and what the best strategy for them would be. I'm not a statistician, but from what I can see by the choices you're allowed to take in this game, there have to be billions, if not trillions of combinations. Trillions. Trillions. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of combinations. I don't know about trillions, but there's definitely a lot of different ways to go. Well, for those looking for more actions, you can go to the factory. And when you go to the factory, you can choose a new action for your playmat. In case you didn't feel like there was enough actions to not choose from, <laughs> you can stick another square on your I board. used my factory. I used my factory. I, I really like the factory spot. It's exciting. It's always exciting to add. I think I was the first one down there, and I took the action where I could crank out mechs. Yeah, you can prank out mech without having to pay resources. Yeah. Huge. Once somebody chooses their option from the factory, that option is no longer there. So the first person's obviously going to choose the best one. And they diminish in value as you get there later. So I didn't even bother going to the factory. And limiting your actions. Um, also, I was busy moving to the encounter spots since that was where my card had an advantage. And you used, you used that advantage very well. This is a game where you have to choose a strategy mm -hmm. and you have to work hard toward it because otherwise, if you spread yourself too thin, you're just not going to get anywhere. This sounds like it has all the elements of like a frustratingly well-designed Euro game. <laughs> I would say it's an excellently uh, balanced war game. Absolutely. It's tight. It, it simulates to me the feeling of a first world war that's dragged on for 20 years instead of, you know, four or five, and everyone's given up on dreams of a, their decisive victory and that they're stuck in war and they want to get back to peace, but they don't really know how. Oh, so a bright and cheerful backdrop. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, there's definitely a grimness a little bit, a grittiness, I say, to the theme of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the art is very beautiful and displays that. As grim as it is, the lightheartedness was in the encounter cards. As Ed read before, you can hear... 
singing or dancing or dining or, you know, just the things that people try to do to keep their spirits up in such a glum time. Which I thought was key to the, the world building in the game because it adds a little humanity to the game and, it, and also brings you into the world a bit. And there's a practical reason for it because the, the popularity index measurably moves you toward progress and victory. Yeah, and, and your popularity ends up being a score multiplier. So it's, it's big. When you go up higher in your popularity track, you're going to score, now instead of two times your stars, you're going to score three times your stars. And that can be big. Yeah, it helped me win. Uh, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have won without the popularity getting up there. I want to say one thing about the map. All right, talk about that map. When you flip over the board, it's the same map, but double the size. And so the board only shows half of it. You got to get the expansion set to get the other half of the original board in double the size. And I think it made a huge difference in the value of the art. I think I would have been more, far more engaged playing on the larger board because I could really see the farms and I could see the people. Uh, I didn't get a look at that at the larger board, but something that I liked about the board we were playing on was, well, was for one thing, the rule that everything seems to just have a movement of one, like everything had the same movement allowance. Until you got the upgrade. Well, yes, un yes, until you got the upgrade, but also that there were tunnels everywhere, which also facilitated movement to the point where moving one space a turn was not you know, a terrible handicap. The tunnels were exciting. They were very fun to use. Who doesn't love a hidden trail? I mean, mm -hmm. starting with Candyland. Yeah. Who who doesn't love well, a maybe, hidden trail? Maybe not the Donner Party, but... <laughs> 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 okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Scythe. Joe? I freely admit that it's frustrating at times, but overall, I definitely like it. So I'm going to dig it up. Evan? This is the kind of game that is hard to review having played it only once. I think it deserves several plays. For that reason alone, the game succeeds. So dig it up. Mike? Although I did feel it dragged a little bit too long, and at some points the balance seemed like it might be a little off, the multitude of choices left me wanting to give it another shot. So dig it up. Ed? I played this game a few times, and I'm looking to play some more. Engine building is right up my alley, and the turns are quite speedy when players broke the mechanics. And it's also very nice to look at, so I'll dig it up. Scythe is likely to challenge the patience of most casual gamers due to the extremely incremental progression. As pretty and detailed as this game is, for me personally, I will bury it. Ed, where can you find it? Scythe is available at local game stores and online. MSRP, 90 bucks. There are also three different expansions out there already. And also, as we talked about, there is a board extension to play on the much larger board. If you have thoughts about Scythe, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is This Game Goes to Eleven. Designed by Trio Game Designers, published by GameRight, number of players 2 to 6, ages 8 and up, runtime 15 to 30 minutes. Okay, when we found this game left behind on the tour bus, what were our first impressions? Mike? The movie This is Spinal Tap made me laugh out loud. Let's see if this game can live up to that. Evan? It's a card game, but look, it comes with a guitar pick. First time for everything. Ed? Well, as you know, 11 is one louder than 10. <laughs> Joe? 
Looks like the kind of game you'd play over and over for hours on your kitchen table. It's such a fine line between stupid and... uh, Clever? Yeah, clever. But before we find out if this game crosses the line, Evan, tell us how it's played. In This Game Goes to 11, each player is dealt three cards. The cards are numbered 1 to 9 with some special 11 and 0 cards included as well. Play goes around the table with each player discarding one card to the central pile and drawing back up to three. If the stack's numbers total less than 11, play simply passes to the next player. If the total is exactly 11, then the player who made it exactly 11 gives the stack to any other player of their choice. Now, if the stack total is more than 11, then the player who made it higher than 11 must take all the cards in the discard stack. If someone plays the special natural 11 card onto the discard pile, they can immediately take that pile and give it to any other player of their choice. However, if someone else has a zero card, also known as the shh card, they can immediately play it to force the 11 player to take the discard pile themselves. Haha, take that. And to win... Be the player with the fewest collected discarded cards at the end of the game. This game is super basic. Unlike Scythe. <laughs> Who'd have thought it, but it may be the actual opposite of Scythe. <laughs> <laughs> In every way. <laughs> can you count to 11? You can play it again. <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of math you have to do. <laughs> so it's tougher than Uno. Yeah, there is addition and subtraction. Not really much subtraction, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Just addition. Sorry. It's addition and addition. You, you can play it as if it were subtraction, because you should always start with the number 11. 11 in your head, and then as numbers get thrown, subtract, keep subtracting those from 11. <laughs> so that's addition or subtraction. Whoa, you just blew my mind. <laughs> Man, I was so excited when I saw this game goes to 11, a direct reference to Spinal Tap, but that was basically it besides the <laughs> that font. Was, that that was the beginning and end. And did you even see that 11 card? <laughs> that's true. And they did have, uh, like, the speaker was the back of the card. It had a dial on it, and it went to 11. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but that, yes, yeah, specifically yeah. Spinal Tap, I don't yep. know. One could definitely say that it touched on the theme, but in a superficial way. Well, it... It did go to 11. <laughs> the game did, in fact, go to 11. So what do we have? We have the font, mm-hmm. yep. the the shiny cover, mm-hmm. the, the picture of the amp on the back of the card, and the guitar player on the number 11. That's it. And let's not forget about the Apple plastic pick included in the game. Yes, the game comes with a guitar pick for an alternate version called Pick On Me, where the pick is used to designate in advance which player receives the next stack of cards to go to 11. The pick starts in the possession of the first player. Whenever a pile reaches 11, the guitar pick passes from its current owner to the player on their left. This prevents the game from getting too uneven from one or two players being, dare I say it, picked on. <laughs> yeah, I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about, Joe. Yeah, um, yeah Ed. <clears throat> it's not like you suffered uh, like half of the deck of cards. Which the is the game. dumbest strategy. Why are you giving all the cards to one guy? That just means the rest of us are too close to winning. The first five times that went to 11, I got the cards. Oh, man. I mean, there is a certain psychology like, oh, God, Ed's good at games. Quick, pile them all on him. Somehow he'll find a way to win. <laughs> yeah, he needs a handicap. This game definitely inspires British accents at the table. 
uh, jokes from the movie. Oh, sure. Because you're just going to sit around. There's not a lot to do here, so you've got plenty of time to, you know, just goof around at the table while you're playing. Did you draw uh, three of your hands? No, I didn't, so that's my What's call. this? What's this? What's it? <laughs> Take it. It's, uh, British accent, Ed. It's more than 11. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Love it. Four. 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 It is Uno-like. It feels a lot like Uno and, you know, without the direction changes or Uno itself. It reminded me of a game called Skipbo, too, where if you can't put a card on a certain pile, but you have a matching card, you can start a new pile. You know, it had little mechanics of other really simple card games that are in the same category. The split rule was kind of neat, where you have the matching card, you start a new discard pile. If there's a one on top of the discard pile and you're about to play a one, you actually start a new discard pile. Because if they match, then you go on to a new discard pile. So there can be multiple discard piles going at once, which is fun. And what I loved about this game is, unlike Uno, the discard pile cannot get huge. Anytime it gets to 11 or above 11, it goes away. Mm -hmm. So I really like that nobody ends up with this depressing 30-card discard pile. Unless somebody played a zero or shush card on top of the pile. So the cards that add up to nine tuck in underneath the zero, and that pile remains, but it starts again at zero. So right. whoever gets that pile will get the two cards underneath it plus the new cards that come uh -huh. on top. Yeah, there weren't too many shush cards, and most people kept their shushes to avoid getting an 11. Mm -hmm. right. But if you, so even with the shush cards in the mix, you could never really get that pile too high, which I liked. Yeah, I used it one time to avoid taking the pile. So let's, let's talk about the mass market production value of this game. <laughs> <laughs> this game had like three graphics. A cartoon picture on the 11, a cartoon picture on the zero, and then everything else was like this just dial on all the other cards with a number in the corner because the number is what mattered. The cards had different colors depending on the number. I don't understand yep. why because yeah. the colors had nothing to do with the game. So I guess just for aesthetics, I suppose. They were trying to show the numbers getting amped up. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it goes from cooler colors to hotter colors. Maybe? <laughs> yeah, subtle. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a plus in this genre, though, to keep things real simple, not having too many distracting things on the cards. Because I know the people that I play with that play the lighter games don't want to be distracted by too many graphics or words on the cards. I, I don't think it was terrible in this case. My younger daughter loves Uno, and I often feel like it is an endless game. And this game does not give you that. So do you, do you just play through the whole deck and once the deck is gone, it's over? Yep. Deck's done. Count up your cards. Least cards wins. Boom. Reset, shuffle, ready to play again. I mean, you can keep a running score or play it new every time. You could keep a leaderboard like Scythe comes with. <laughs> <laughs> you could play a little Gameception with it too. Mm -hmm. This would be a great to combo up with Gameception, I think. Okay, Explorers, it's time to dig up or bury. This game goes to 11. Mike? Well, I read the rules and I feel like I have a strong understanding of how this game works, but I didn't actually play it, so I will have to abstain from judgment right now. Evan? Well, it's a party game. Anyone can play it. That's a plus. The minus is the subject. I, I don't know that the much younger crowd will have much interest in this. Is it multi-generational? This is Spinal Tap? I just don't know. Maybe if they were to repackage it, it would be worth a dig up, but I'll bury it for now. Ed? It's fine as a party game. It plays quick, but light on gaming calories. 
If you can add up to 11, this game may be for you. While I'll bury it for my collection, I wouldn't mind it when friends bring it to my party. Joe? This game has a lot of replayability. Uh, similar to a lot of other familiar card games, while still having art and features unique to itself. Uh, I'll dig it up for that reason. I found the play faster and less demoralizing than Uno. It inspires most people to try a British accent. And it also sparks conversation about a maverick mockumentary. It dials up to 11. Dig it up. Joe, where can you find the game? This game goes to 11, can easily be found online, new and used for 10 to $15. If you have thoughts about This Game Goes to 11, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. That brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including our all-new post show, for just $3 a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcaster. It really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server. We are at Which Game First, and our Patreon subscribers get access to exclusive channels. Happy gaming, explorers! Hey, everyone, gather round. Joe's going to talk for a bit. Shocking. I just want to express how fortunate we are to have two visionaries on this panel. Uh, Mike Bonilla and uh, Edmund Peristalsis. Uh, they're like two of history's greatest architects, really, like James Keats and uh, Whitman, uh, Slim Whitman. Two distinct types of visionaries, like Fire and Ice, all very Game of thrones I, I feel my role in the band, I mean on the panel, is somewhere in the middle, kind of like uh, Patrick Payne. So profound. <laughs>